Welcome, Andrew, from doing all this work at the University of South Carolina, sharing uh, all sorts of divisions, education, social science, arts, humanities, and letters. Um, I hope I got all of that right. University of South Carolina, Sumter. Andrew Kunka, welcome to Professor Latinx, and you're going to share with us everything we need to know about autobiographical comics. Oh, thanks. That's a big, that's uh, a tall order, but I'll try. <laughs> welcome. And um, so, yeah, let's kind of, you know, a lot of us started our careers, um, you know, in literature, the study of literature, and um, you also started your career, um, I believe, you know, with a PhD in literary studies from Purdue. How, what's your origin story? Like, how did you get into comic studies? Um, well, like some, some people would say I was in comic studies my entire life in a sense and didn't know it. I mean, I've been, you know, reading comics since I was able to read. It's probably about three or four years old. Um, and even in uh, even in my like early teens was writing letters to comics that had kind of i don't know scholarly elements to them the first letter i had published was in a justice league of america comic where i was complaining that their annual justice league justice society team ups had too many repeated characters every year and i had like done the statistics on who was showing up every year um, and I didn't realize that that was kind of the seeds of, of doing comics. But, um, you know, I got an English uh, BA and even, even then it, um, was planning on going to graduate school. I had a, one of, uh, one of my recommenders wrote in his letter of recommendation, uh, Andy was the first guy I knew who was in the mouse. Uh, and this was like 1991. Uh, and I was given this teacher, I given this professor, you know, copies of raw with the chapters in them before volume two of mouse came out and, and things like that. And then, um, but, th but, you know, I followed a pretty traditional uh, literary studies uh, path doing my PhD in um, 20th century British literature and looking at, um, the uh, narratives of shell shock in first world war literature in England. Um, and, um, but as a, even as a graduate student, I had, um, at Purdue, I was lucky for, for one year, uh, David Herman was there. I know he was a colleague of yours at one time. Mm -hmm. And, uh, he, um, he and I would talk comics all the time, not with any idea that we were going to, you know, each go into doing, doing comic studies later on. But um, he was a real, you know, big influence on my, on my career. Uh, and then, you know, I, I got a, I got, I got lucky and got a tenure track job right out of grad school and, um, and you know, kind of milked my dissertation for all I could get uh, before getting tenure. And then, um, when I got tenure, just decided I was going to switch over to comic studies. Um, I didn't, it, it wasn't at a school. Luckily I was at a school that had a lot of, gave a lot of leeway about what kind of scholarship you could do. I wasn't pigeonholed into being the 20th century British literature guy. I was more of a generalist anyway. 
And so as long as, you know, as long as I was doing scholarship and publishing, that was, um, that was fine. And so, um, you know, through, I think some, again, some lucky opportunities where I, I got asked to do some things to, to write book reviews and present at conferences on, on comics, I kind of transitioned into that world. Really, yeah, um, amazing that many, many of us started on a sort of course of literary, say, alphabetic literary study <laughs> and ended up in these uh, new, really crazy, creative, uh, visual and alphabetic narrative sort of, um, spaces. So why autobiographies and why, why did they matter, Andrew? <laughs> um, you know, that, that's, that's a good question. You know, I think... Um, you know, for a while, um, you know, we've, or we, you know, we've been seeing for, um, you know, the last 25 years or more, the kind of centrality of autobiographical comics in, um, in the comics industry. Um, you know, if you, if, if you step outside of the comic shop and the domination of superheroes in that venue and look in, uh, you know, classrooms and bookstores um, and in scholarship, um, you really see the dominance of, of uh, autobiographical comics from, you know, the, the Trinity of Mouse, Fun Home and Persepolis to, uh, you know, Raina Telgemeier's work and the young adult stuff that's coming out from that. Um, but why they, why they matter um, I think is a is a tougher question. Um, I think one of the reasons why they're so kind of popular and they appeal so much is that um, there there's something about comics that lends itself to um, having readers engage with autobiographical stories. Um, I always kind of try to resist the idea that one medium does something better than another medium, but comics do something different than than other media in terms of uh, in terms of autobiography um and so the choices that a that a creator makes regarding um artistic style uh page layout and panel progression um narrative choices the um relationship of image and text all require a lot of reader engagement as you know a lot of comics scholars have talked about like Scott McCloud and so on. And, and so with autobiography, autobiography, that makes it, you know, uh, even more of a connection with, um, with readers. And I see that when I teach autobiographical comics, I see students really gravitating towards, uh, towards those particular works. Um, so, you know, and, and we also see, you know, autobiographical comics showing up in places that people wouldn't necessarily call them autobiographical comics, like, you know, like the Rage Comics meme, which led millions of people to create their own autobiographical comics, even though they wouldn't necessarily consider themselves autobiographical cartoonists, um, or stuff like, um, you know, Ali Brosh 
hyperbole and a half and uh, Sarah Anderson, Sarah Scribbles, have, Sarah Scribbles have so many, you know, millions of readers that aren't comics readers um, or wouldn't consider themselves comics readers. Uh, and so with things like that and things like, you know, what Raina Telgemeier is doing, um, you know, it seems like autobiographical comics are going to continue to matter. And I think continue to be important to, to a lot of readers. I'm really looking forward to that generation of readers who read, um, you know, who read smile and sisters, uh, and, um, were influenced by it. Um, when I ask my students if they know Raina Telgemeier, they often say, I only know it because my younger sister or my younger brother reads it, you know? Um, so I don't think I've seen that generation yet in my classes, but, um, you know, that and the fact that Raina puts out things like, um, you know, my smile diary and share your smile, which really encourages young readers to do their own autobiographical comics. I think we're heading into a world, uh, another generation that's going to be doing amazing things that I'm really looking forward to. You know, um, Andy, we have uh, right here, Alison Bechtel, Satrapi and Spiegelman. And it's interesting that, gosh, I mean, as far as canon, like it doesn't get any more like canon, right? I mean, this is the staple for many folks in English departments and others uh, that mm-hmm. teach comics. So like there, is there something about autobiographical form in comics or just autobiography generally that uh, lends itself to um, kind of entering into spaces of English departments or academic spaces generally? Is there something I'm just wondering, um, you know, I mean, people talk about DC and Marvel as like the like the the big two, but like, I mean, yeah. Raina Talgemeier is another example. Like, Scholastics mm-hmm. outperforms DC and Marvel mm-hmm. by like a long shot. I mean, there's something something about the autobiography and maybe mm-hmm. a kind of regional or national. I hate to say national, but like a U.S. kind of impulse, not just to create but also to consume. Right? I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I mean, when you ask about, like, how they enter into, like, English departments and things like that, I mean, I think that, you know, on on one hand, you know, Mouse, Persepolis, Fun Home, and and others like that lend themselves to the kind of um, auteurist impulse that English departments, you know, English teachers want to have. Um, There are very, very few autobiographical comics in which that are collaborative. Uh, Harvey P. Cars and Dennis Eichhorns or something like March uh, are the exceptions. So, you know, um, you can talk about Alison Bechdel and Art Spiegelman as singular creators the way you can talk about James Joyce or Shakespeare or anything like that. So I think those things lend themselves. I think also, you know, Mouse... Persepolis and Fun Home all came out at a time when the themes that they raise were popular in English departments and in literary studies, uh, trauma especially. And, you know, Hilary Shute has written about how um, 
the comics medium tends to, you know, lend itself very well to depictions of trauma by what it can show and doesn't show and how the comics page is naturally fragmented like traumatic memory. Um, you know, so there, there's, there's those things. And, um, you know, so, so those three books in particular fit into what a lot of people who weren't doing comics already or didn't have a, a history of reading or teaching comics, you know, going back um, any further than, than uh, you know, 1986 would, um, you know, would naturally kind of gravitate towards. Um, I'm kind of, I'm, you know, I'm curious about, and a lot of people talk about how um, nobody's writing about Raina Telgemeier, for example, in scholarship. I think people are, I think we're going to be seeing this, um, but where does, where does her work fit into the kind of things that are the kind of themes and, and, and approaches that are popular in literary studies today? Uh, I'll be curious to see the stuff that comes out there. Yeah, really, I'm excited as well. I think there's, yeah, like you said, we're still, there's a little bit of catch up happening, right? And we're gonna yeah. see that new generation. Um, so you've also <clears throat> dug into the archives and made some discoveries here. Um, can you t share a little bit about this work that you do? Sure, yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things that kind of, I look at throughout like kind of a, as a running theme throughout my scholarship is to kind of think about the, the kind of accepted narratives or kind of conventional wisdom of comics history and kind of challenge it or ask questions about it. So, you know, when I started writing about autobiographical comics, um, you know, the conventional wisdom there is autobiographical comics begin in 1972 with Justin Green's Binky Brown meets the Holy Virgin Mary and, uh, you know, some of Crumb's short stories and Aline Kaminsky's Goldie uh, and um, Art Spiegelman's kind of proto-mouse story all coming out in that same year. Um, and that's that's true if you, if you think about... Um, autobiographical comics as, in that confessional mode. The, they definitely, you know, those underground creators definitely influenced a lot of other people. And there's, there's a clear lineage, you know. Uh, Spiegelman says he wouldn't have done Mouse without, um, without Justin Green. And uh, Lean Kaminsky says she wouldn't have done her autobiographical comics if she hadn't read Binky Brown. So, uh, but, you know, I thought about kind of, you know, the definition, what, what makes a comic autobiographical, and you look at something like Binky Brown, and it's, you know, the, the main character has a different name than Justin Green. Um, there's things visualized in there that are, are, you know, allegorical rather than literal. And... So if you, you know, if a work like that expands our definition of what can be done autobiographically, we can go backwards in time and look for things that qualify in that same way. And in fact, if um, we go back and through the history of cartooning, there is a long tradition of cartoonists depicting themselves 
in the comics and interacting with their creations and things like that. So why aren't those autobiographical comics? Um, and um, uh, Craig Yeo put out a really good collection of uh, anthology of comics called Comics About Cartoonists a few years ago. And that's was really eye-opening to me on, on this level too. Uh, so, you know, you can go back to Windsor McKay and Bud Fisher and, um, Milt Gross and a lot of these early, you know, early 20th century cartoonists and find them doing, you know, depicting themselves in the comics and, and doing autobiographical stories. And, and, you know, two I really latched on to because I'm kind of fans of this golden age era of comics is, uh, the series Inky, which was created by Al, Al Stahl for quality comics and, uh, Sheldon Mayer's Scribbly. And, you know, Scribbly is about a boy cartoonist as a teenager becoming successful in that area. And Mayer had that same experience. He, Scribbly looks like a young Sheldon Mayer. So there seemed to be a lot of the things that we would identify as autobiographical and works today that were going on in Scribbly. And, and Inky is a really interesting example because, uh, uh, Stahl depicts himself, you know, struggling at work to create a comic strip and a magical little boy made of ink comes up and finishes his stories for him. And then, um, you know, and then uh, becomes his partner in creating comics. And then other creators pick up that series as well um, and, and depict themselves as uh, working with, with, with Inky. And so we kind of go back to that, that tradition of the way in which cartoonists were depicting themselves in comics going back to, uh, you know, these early comic strips and through, through stuff in the 1940s. We see a different tradition that's not the confessional tradition of autobiography, but is instead a tradition that deals with labor issues, with, you know, kind of the struggle to, for artistic expression in an industry that is, you know, working on a deadline and is, you know, completely profit driven. Um, we, you know, we see artists struggling with, um, you know, abusive editors and, and things like that. And, um, and so, um, so I like to look at, like, ask the question, like, what would a comment, what would a tradition of autobiographical comics be if we start there and and there we see a tradition that's dealing with you know dealing with labor practices and and those sorts of things. Um, now there's other scholars now who are also kind of pushing this question about what are the first autobiographical comics or what are the earliest ones. Um, I know uh, uh, Francesca Lynn is doing really interesting work with uh, finding autobiographical strains and stuff like Torchy Brown. Uh, and I think there's there's a whole world. So kind of taking this assumption, challenging this assumption that autobi autobiographical comics begin in 1972, um, you know, and kind of working our way backwards and looking for other other things gives us, I think, a different a different view of what that history is. Right, and also, you know, alerts us to different shaping devices, right, that we might not have been kind of tuned into um, and how those have evolved. Um, so speaking of archives, uh, mm -hmm. yeah, do you want to tell us a little bit about um, 
gosh, your work also in race and ethnicity in comics? Sure, sure. So um, this is kind of where where I started. And so I've, I've done a few things in this and I've continued working on, um, on this subject here and there. But this also came about from a kind of thing, you know, looking at the way um, especially racial caricature has been talked about in the history of, of comics, um, you know, with, with a creator like Will Eisner and the defense of Will Eisner's um, Ebony White being, well, he's a product of the time that there, you know, uh, Eisner even said at one point uh, in one interview when he was challenged about Ebony White, what choice did I have for drawing a black boy at that time? And I thought when I read that, especially that, well, there were a lot of choices, <laughs> you know, this was, so the idea that a creator was kind of helpless within this, uh, you know, racist culture to do nothing but caricature uh, with African-American characters, I thought was, um, you know, wasn't true of course. And so kind of looking for those examples, going kind of going into the archive and looking for those examples of um you know comics in the 1940s that would have come out at the same time as will eisner's the spirit or um you know or with um you know asian caricatures like chop chop and blackhawk that weren't doing those things um and finding not a ton of examples but finding plenty of examples to know that that you know that to kind of confirm this kind of common sense idea that creators weren't locked into one, uh, one kind of representation. Um, but then also one of the things that also intrigued me about, um, about Ebony White in particular and Chop Chop was that these are characters that have been around for a long time. And especially thinking about, about Chop Chop who deb debuts, in 1941 and 1942 and that Blackhawk series runs until the late sixties and then intermittently comes up again through the 21st century. So we've got a character who has, you know, I mean, in what other kind of medium or in what other examples do we have a character who uh, has changed like that over time? And so one of the questions I wanted to ask with, with characters like that and something similar has happened with Ebony White, uh, though not as consistently is what um, have comics kept up with the times or have they lagged behind? Um, you know, so in terms of, um, you know, in terms of kind of changing what might be acceptable to the dominant culture about, about racial caricature. Uh, and then, and, and so then you see all these attempts over, um, over the decades with things like, you know, Dell's Lobo series, um, being the first, um, African-American character to carry his own title. That book lasts two issues, um, two issues that are spread out nine months apart, I think in their publication too. Um, and, um, you know, and other, and, or, or in the night, going back to the 1950s, Fawcett's attempts at things like Negro romance or doing, you know, Joe Louis, 
Joe Lewis and um, and Jackie Robinson comics uh, that that again we have a kind of counter tradition to the tradition of of caricature that um, seems to have these kind of fits and starts over the course of 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 comics history and so that's that sort of thing kind of again another example of kind of coming up with a counter narrative to the the dominant narrative that um, that creators were locked into caricature at one point in time and then something changed over the course of that time right and then of course not it, it not necessarily being a kind of teleology of pro progress right right exactly exactly um i am also thinking gosh will eisner certainly didn't kind of listen to that conversation <laughs> when we look at his uh spirit um recreation yeah. right the the film oh my goodness yeah <laughs> pretty wild um You've also been digging into kind of comics history in and through a public publisher, right? That was um, right there kind of co competing at some, a certain point with the big two and then kind of, you know, disappeared. Um, Dell and Gold Key Comics. What? Yeah. And then you've, they did comics based on like TV shows, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this was another, this is another kind of example of how I guess my scholarship works, which is uh, I'll, you know, dig through long boxes and see something interesting and grab it and discover, oh, wait, wait a minute, this, this opens up a new door. And so I, you know, my interest in Dell Comics started with picking up at a, at a show, a cheap beat up copy of this 87th Precinct comic. Uh, I, like the Ed McBain novels, I'm a fan of crime novels. So, uh, so I, I picked that up uh, and then, and, it, and it's from 1962, I opened it up and the whole comic is about um, heroin trafficking. Uh, one of the detectives goes undercover as a heroin dealer and you get to learn, you get to learn the hierarchy of heroin distribution from the dealers up to, you know, up to the the people making the heroin and uh and i thought how how does this how did this exist in 1962 uh the comics code prohibited depictions of of um drug use and there are like there are images in here of uh you know of of junkies with needles in their arms um with but but they're also kind of very sympathetic the book talks about drug addiction as a disease not as and, and advocates the treatment of drug addiction as a disease and not as a criminal um, or legal issue and so this really surprised me and part of what surprised me about it too is that you know Dell has this reputation for being the source of uh, you know Walt Disney and Looney Tunes comics and the story we always hear is that they did not um, join the comics code because they already had a really strict code, internal code that, um, that prevented them from, or that, you know, that's, that stopped this kind of material from getting through. Uh, Helen Meyer who was the vice president of Dell even said at the Senate hearings in 1954 that, um, you know, Dell didn't do crime comics or horror comics. So they didn't need to, uh, associate themselves with these other uh, 
uh, with these other publishers. And so, um, so Dell gets kind of dismissed then in the 1950s in favor of talking about a company like EC. Um, but, um, you know, in, in terms of the dominance in the market, Dell had 11 comics that were selling over a million copies in the 1950s. Uh, EC's total output in terms of sales didn't equal one or two Dell comics sales. So why does EC dominate our discussion of 1950s comics and not, and not Dell? Okay, so then, but something happened. And so then I wondered, is this 87th Precinct comic an anomaly? You know, is this just this one time that somebody tried to sneak in a drug story uh, under the radar? Uh, and it turns out it wasn't. There are a lot of adaptations of, of crime shows and medical dramas like Ben Casey uh, that dealt with drug use or drug dealing. Um, at a time when no other publisher could do that if they were a part of the comics code. Um, there's even, there's even a, a, an issue of Mod Squad that has on its cover like blazing kidnapping and crooked cops and both kidnapping and crooked and, and you know, police corruption were forbidden by the comics code at that time. It's almost like it's advertising itself to readers as we're, we're you know, we're doing something that you can't get in, a, in other comics. Um, so, um, so I, I, so that, that raised a question for me of, of did Dell um, leverage its, um, you know, its resistance to the comics code in a way to put out things that couldn't be done by other publishers? Um, did Dell also leverage its position as a significant paperback publisher at the time that did publish a lot of, you know, really lurid crime uh, romance novels and things like that. And was there some kind of synergy between its paperback publishing line and its comic book publishing line for these things? And we do see, we do see a lot of that. You see, uh, for example, they published the Mike Shane, uh, crime novels, but also did a Mike Shane comic that adapted those novels. Um, and those Mike Shane comics are crazy in terms of what they, they get away with that no other publishers doing in, in 1962. Was, um, was Gold Key also getting away with stuff? Yeah. So Gold, so in 1961, 62, Dell, which had a relationship with a company called Western Publishing, which did all the editorial work and even the printing of the comics that, that Dell then published, um, Western split off from Dell and created Gold Key Comics and took with them all of the popular licenses. So they took the, the Walt Disney comics and the Looney Tunes comics and the Hanna-Barbera comics, leaving Dell with very little. So I think, I think part of what Dell's doing then you know, one of my speculations is to leverage, you know, to, to kind of maintain its status in the marketplace starts in 1962 or so to start leveraging its, its position as, a, as being outside of the comics code. But Gold Key is doing the same things too. Um, and they don't sign on to the comics code either. 
Yeah, I noticed uh, Land of the Giants there. You um, the the cover there we have yeah. <laughs> kind of prominently featured. Um, you know. Uh, a series of characters and of course, you know, centrally an African-American. Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, really interesting also because I think, I don't think a lot of people, no. when they, when they think about U.S. comics, they never think about the photo novel or that, yeah. history, right? And what you're doing here is really kind of excavating that, that kind yeah. of formal and also kind of um, archive history. Um, yeah. So let me jump us into your teaching. Um, gosh, you know, Andy, I, I know that you love teaching. Um, <laughs> and uh, Tell us, share with us a little bit about how you bring comics into your classrooms. Um, well, again, I, I kind of got lucky at the institution I'm at where I have a lot of freedom to teach things that I want, I want to do. So um, we had, you know, we had our, our kind of gen ed literature courses that are pretty straightforward, you know, fiction, drama, poetry, and then British and American literature and world literature kind of things. Um, so I decided that to, when I taught the fiction class, turn it into a comics class. And the first time I taught it, I, um, you know, it's only, it was only listed in the catalog as fiction. Um, so a handful of students took it and were surprised that it was all comics. Some of them complained at the beginning that I didn't sign up for a comics class. But a lot of those that were resistant at the beginning by the end were, you know, were kind of excited by it. Um, so that class started out with not a lot of students, but something happened. And, you know, the community I teach in in Sumter, South Carolina is a pretty small community. And so one of the things that um, kind of got back to me was that some of the students who were taking the class at USC Sumter were telling their friends and back in high school, hey, you go to USC Sumter, there's a class on comics there. And so this, class started to grow and you know I started to see you know on the first day of class a front row of students that are wearing their Wolverine and Deadpool and Green Lantern t-shirts as if to kind of announce you know you're one of us <laughs> and um, and that you know that started making me really you know really, really happy and excited to be teaching that class um, and then you know I'm also lucky to be um, in the University of South Carolina system with, uh, especially with uh, Kiana Witted being at the main USC campus. And she, she and others there worked really hard to create, you know, dedicated comics classes. So there's an upper level introduction to comics studies class in the catalog that I, that I now get to teach as well. That also is cross-listed in film and media studies, which is nice too. So, um, yeah, so I'm, I'm excited by the fact that I get to teach those, uh, those classes. Now, some of the things I do in the class, I mean, one of the things that I do that, that I'm really happy about that turned out to work really well is on the first day of class, I, I bring a stack of comics, a stack, and they're usually, you know, um, I have a huge comic book collection that's ridiculous. And 
um, I don't keep track very well of what I have. And so I'm very often buying comics that I already own. So I keep that stack of like doubles. And then on the first day of class, I bring, I bring those in and I give them the students and I tell them, first of all, this is yours to keep. You get this, this is a free comic. And so uh, they're really excited about that. They start trading them right away. Uh, but I, I say on that first day of class, give me five reasons why this is a comic book and or how you know it's a comic book. And then I kind of put them into groups to kind of share what they came up with. And then the groups pr present, you know, their four best or whatever, what they think are, are their four best reasons. And, um, and I get really creative answers, you know, like answers like it has staples in it or it says comic book on the cover or uh you know there's panels and um you know the, even things like advertisements or how much it costs and things like that so they, they they really kind of get some of those things uh but i also get the answer of you know it has superheroes in it so that allows me to then talk about the dominance of superheroes as equating comics in, in a lot of the discourse on, on comic books and popular culture. Um, so that, that works really well. The other thing I've started doing is having students make their own comics. Mm, yeah. And um, I, I, I give them, um, I do two assignments with this. And one, I give them um, each a reprint of a Golden Age comic that has really obscure superheroes in it, not the well-known ones. And I tell them to pick one of those stories and write and create the next story in the series. What comes next? Um, and I've been really happy with some of the results or with most of the results of this, this activity because they really then are thinking about what defines the genre of superheroes, what's kind of ridiculous a lot about a lot of the golden age superheroes and they're really kind of indefined powers and things like that. I even, um, I got one, one this year that I was so impressed with. He had figured out the date of publication of what the next issue would have been of the comic he was writing about and had his character reading newspapers that had the headlines that would have been on new that were on newspapers at that time. Like he really loved doing that project and dug into stuff like that. Uh, and so that was uh those are a lot of fun. And then I have them do autobiographical comics when we're talking about autobiographical comics. And those are amazing too. I mean, I get, um, I had one student who, um, who has MS who did a comic about what her typical treatment is like. And she pasted into the comic, a brain scan, uh, and things like that. Um, that was really neat. I've had other comic, other students deal with, you know, deal with other traumatic experiences and then come out and say, I was really glad I had the opportunity to, to do this. Um, but then, you know, like this semester that 
that assignment happened to coincide with us moving online for classes. And so about half the class did what their day is like, how their life has changed because of, of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think that, that could have been an interesting assignment in and of itself to just have students do that. Um, but, but one of the things that impresses me because I do say this is not an art class. You're not being graded on, on your art is how the students come up with creative ways to then work around what they see as their own limitations as artists. Um, and so then they start, that makes them start to think about what do I put in text versus what do I draw mm. or how can I draw something that's within my abilities to draw, uh, but still convey a kind of complicated scene that I realize now I, I can't do, or that I can't do with the amount of time I have left to get this project done. Um, so it's really impressive then to see how, um, how creative they can be. Um, I almost stopped doing those assignments the first time I did them because that first batch was so good that I've felt like anybody else is going to, any other <laughs> class is going to disappoint me after this, after this class doing it. Um, but I chose to do it again, you know, this year and um, still continue to be really, really impressed. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah. As, a, as comics as a space of kind of guiding them to a narrative that allows them to, kind of share their own story, but also as a way to appreciate the form of this mm-hmm. as a storytelling, right? Um, mm-hmm. Mode. And then yeah, another course. thing I like to do is to bring in creators too, mm-hmm. um, because we have a good local creative community. Plus um, my, um, a few years ago I was approached by some local, the local arts council wanting to do a comic show in Sumter their idea the, the the head of the art council and her husband were big walking dead fans. So they wanted me to bring in like Robert Kirkman. <laughs> and I said, well, I know how, you know, I know how much Robert Kirkman costs. You don't have that much money, but we can, we can do this um, with the, the amount of money we have. And so we ended up creating this, um, uh, this comic show that, integrates the university with the community. Um, I, I mean, it, it's probably overstating it that I like to see it as like a, a mini CXC, like what you do in Columbus. Um, it's not quite that level, but it's, it's got that same kind of idea of, ma- of making it a community-wide event. And so usually what I do is then the creators I bring in, I assign their books in my class. So this, this semester for the autobiographical unit, they read uh, Noah Van Skyver's uh, One Dirty Tree. And I feel really lucky that Noah moved from Columbus to Columbia, South Carolina a couple of years ago. Um, so I'm, I'm able to tap into him. And then Rachel Lindsay's RX about her experience with bipolar disorder. Nice. Um, and students love them. They love being able to see the and talk to the creators. In fact, after afterwards, Rachel kind of gave me the heads up. You're going to get because the students were working on their project, their autobiographical projects at the time. She gave me the heads up and said, "Look, you're going to get some pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> the students are coming to me telling me what they're going to be doing. Just be prepared." And she was right. 
um, but they were really influenced by her. So getting students to connect with teachers, or excuse me, with, uh, with creators in that way, um, you know, it was really great. So important, uh, this sort of, this living, breathing, growing space for creating and knowledge making, right? Um, mm -hmm. What, so yeah, tell us what's exciting to you today in comic studies. Um, well, first of all, you got the picture of Howard Cruz there. So I mentioned that I'm, you know, working on a book on Howard Cruz right now for the series that you're editing. And um, I'm really excited about that. And that, that came out of my uh, work on autobiographical comics. And, you know, when, when you asked about ideas for, for doing something for the series, I, I immediately thought of, you know, creators I read about in autobiographical comics that I would like to teach and, and can't because, um, you know, so much of their shorter works are not, uh, not available. So uh, I'm really excited to be able to, um, to be able to do that and, and work on, you know, I work on Howard's work. Unfortunately, he, you know, he passed away while I was in the midst of, of working on this, but he was really generous and, and kind and uh, supportive and, and excited about the project. So that, you know, gives me a strong sense of uh, obligation to do that justice. Um, but kind of moving into uh, the study of comics today, I mean, I think it's really, I mean, in general, it's really exciting, uh, especially to see, um, you know, to go to a comic studies conference and see the kind of support and um, camaraderie and so on that, that is in the, the field. It's a, because it's, because it's interdisciplinary and um, because I think, you know, at one time it was fairly marginalized, um, you know, people really came together. And, um, and so, I, um, you know, one, one of, I don't want to say one of the things that drove me away from 20th century British literature was this, but, you know, in, in contrast with, say, going to a modernism conference or something like that, which I like doing, and, and I meet, you know, supportive scholars there as well, uh, was that, like, for example, when I started going to James Joyce conferences, I, I did feel like there was a barrier of entry a little bit. Yeah. And, um, and, and on a side note, if, uh, you know, comic studies people get kind of labeled as, as nerds or fans, they have nothing on James Joyce conferences where there, there is cosplay. Uh, there's, uh, James Joyce charades, which goes really, really deep. And, uh, you know, most, most of the couples have their, anniversaries on Bloomsday. So, you know, they can't get, you can't get much more, more fanish than that. Um, but, um, you know, I also think about, um, you know, you, you just, you just had Bart Beattie on and uh, one of the works I'm really, really influenced by right now is um, the, uh, the greatest comic book of all time. Uh, his, him and, and Ben Wu's book that, really points in a direction of kind of expanding how we deal with com how we deal with comics and, and trying to maybe get us away from 
the auteurist and canonical uh, approach to comics and and look at things like like you know for me like Dell and Gold Key comics mm-hmm. which um, you know those comics are not good like they're not they're not even necessarily fun to read but because they're doing different things than we would normally see you know and and I didn't even get into like how they deal with race and diversity and, and other things that I'm that I'm also writing about um, you know uh, that that idea that there's such a kind of democratic approach to to comics emerging that gets that that is open to such a wide variety of different things um, it's you know it's hard to keep up with but it's really energizing and um, and I'm especially I feel especially energized and inspired by the the you know kind of graduate students and early um, you know, early career scholars who are, who are also doing such amazing work and, um, you know, are, are really, again, supportive of each other. Um, I don't know. I think, I feel like when I started doing, when I started doing comic studies, oh, you know, about 10 or so years ago, um, you know, I felt welcomed in. I didn't feel like, you know, I shouldn't be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and, but also that the generosity of a lot of people in, in comic studies, uh, you know, and I'd include you very much in that, but, um, you know, um, my good friend, um, Derek Royal, who passed away recently, um, gave me a lot of opportunities and others have given me opportunities. And, um, I think I feel an obligation to pay those things forward, you know, to, um, uh, and, to, to try to be supportive and, and open to, um, you know, younger scholars working in this as well. Um, gosh, so much that you shared with us, um, Andy, and you're ch- chairing all these divisions over there, teaching online. You're actually in charge now of the online learning spaces over at your university. So thank you for yeah. Me, me, there's another division chair. I should give her credit for that. that I'm not. I'm not doing this solo. There's a second division chair. That's okay. also uh, we're also still, working together. Still really a lot well. of still a lot of work. <laughs> and um, thank you for sort of unzipping your brain and sharing with us your journey and the importance of autobiographical comics, but also kind of comics in the sort of margins and the spaces, the underrepresented archives, right? And the importance of going back and sort of looking at those spaces as creative and also sort of spaces of enriched knowledge making. So thank you, Andy, for joining me here today. Thanks.